1 John chapter 4, verse 7, John writes and he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God, love his brother also. The Apostle John begins this segment here in chapter 4. And a common way that he does throughout all of this epistle, and that he begins with a command, and then he gives an explanation and a reason for the command that he gives. And so the command that he gives to us right off in the beginning of verse seven there is that he says, beloved, let us love one another. And so the command or the call that John gives to us in this segment of scripture is a call to intentional love that we're to have towards one another. Now, it's important on any Bible study that we talk about love in the biblical context that we understand just exactly what the Bible means when the Bible uses the word love. We in the English language and in American culture have made uh, love to be a very cheap word. We kind of use the same word to define our feelings about certain foods or certain places uh, with the way that we feel about certain people, uh, very important people, or even the way that we feel about God. And what we've done is we've taken this, uh, this one word love and we've stretched it out so wide and we've made it so shallow that it's very difficult for us to really comprehend and determine exactly what does the Bible mean when the Bible talks about love. In Jesus' day, in the New Testament language, they didn't use one word 
like we do to, to kind of define love and the various feelings that they would have towards different things and people. But they used commonly, or most commonly, three words uh, to, to, to replace just the one word that we use for love. Uh, the first word that they would use was the word storge. And the word storge, that we would translate love, they would use that word to talk about uh, friendship or camaraderie or companionship. So the way that they would talk about the people in their lives that they were linked with, that they had some kind of a common interest with, people that they would maybe play sports with or people that they would work alongside of, uh, those people, they would ha have a storge. And it was an affection and a relationship, but it was based upon a common interest or a love that grew out of a common interest between people. The second word that they would uh, use to, to describe their affection or their love towards one another was the word phileo. And the word phileo spoke of a familial love or a brotherly type of love, the kind of love that you would have towards a parent, maybe towards a child, towards uh, perhaps a, um, a spouse in some situations or a cousin, someone that you had more of a blood bond with. It was deeper than just a camaraderie or a common ground or, or, or a platonic relationship, but there was something more to it than that. You know? so, so we would say that blood is thicker than water you know, and that families stick together sort of a thing. And that's kind of the definition uh, behind the word phileo, that brother affectionate uh, type of love. The third word uh, that they would use, that we just kind of use the word love for, is the word in the Greek is eros. And it's kind of where we get the idea of erotic love or emotional love or passionate love. And it's a love that's based on uh, a desire, some, some kind of a desire that I have towards you or some kind of an emotional attachment that I'm feeling towards you. And so it's a love that, that's heavily and primarily based upon feeling. And so those are essentially the three words uh, that they would use that we just kind of blanket all of that with the word love. So their love or love in that context is love that comes out of a common interest, uh, love that comes out of a common origin, or love that comes out of a desire or some kind of an emotional attachment. All of those were loves. Now, every one of those loves whether it be the phileo or the storge or the eros, all of those loves are very natural loves. All of us understand those loves. We've all felt those loves. When I say those things, there's names and faces that flash into our minds of people that we have uh, had certain relationships with that we can say, oh yes, well this is a storge that I've had with this person or that's a phileo that I feel towards this person or I understand that eros I don't know where it went, but I know that at one point uh, there was an eros, you know, an erotic feeling there and, uh, you know, that elusiveness to things. But, but I know what those things are and we can relate to them because those are very human loves. But what they all have in common is that they grow out of something, something that we can describe, a common interest or a common origin or a desire. And there's a reason behind all of those loves. They make sense to us. But when Jesus came in, Jesus described a whole different, different new love. He gave love a whole new definition. In fact, he used a whole new word 
to describe the type of love that we're talking about in the context of the Bible, or the kind of love that, that John is talking about here. It's not storge, phileo, or eros, but rather the word that John uses for love and that Jesus used for love is the word agape. It's a totally different love. And Jesus described that love in terms that would shock and bewilder and almost maybe even stumble anyone who heard the way that Jesus described this type of love. And I just want you to listen to, to what Jesus called love. This is the definition that Jesus gives to what true love is or what uh, biblical love is, agape love. He says in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, verse 27, very famous passage, famous sermon that Jesus gives that many of us heard, but many of us uh, fail to acknowledge the weight behind what Jesus says in this. He says, but I say unto you, which hear? Meaning that not everyone can even comprehend this or understand it or hear what Jesus is really saying in this. But he says, I say to you, which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them which curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. And so Jesus' description of love is a love that begins at its very foundation with a love that reaches even unto your enemies and it manifests itself in doing good to those that hate you, blessing them which curse you, and praying for, that is having good intentions and goodwill towards them which despitefully use you. And Jesus doesn't stop there, but he keeps it going and he takes it even deeper in verse 29. He says, and unto him that smites you on the one cheek. So now it's gone from just a feeling of hatred or being used to now an actual physical act of violence that's taken place against you. And he says, and unto him that smites you on the one cheek, offer also the other and him that takes away thy cloak. So now they've stolen from you, not only using you, but they've actually taken something from you. He says, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to everyone that asks of you and of him that takes away thy goods, ask them not again. And as you would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. So in verses 27 through 31 here in Luke 6, Jesus describes what agape is. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the next couple of verses to describe what agape is not. In verse 32, he says this. He says, for if you love them which love you, then what thank have ye for sinners also love those that love them? And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have you for sinners also do even the same? And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. So Jesus describes what agape love is, and then he describes what agape love is not. And what he essentially says concerning what it is not is all of the other three things that we typically associate love as being. Storge, phileo, or eros. In other words, the love that the Bible calls us into and the love that Jesus here is calling us into is not a love that's based upon a common interest. 
It's not based upon a common origin or common ground, and it's not based upon a desire of something that we hope to or are receiving from another person. It is a love that is completely separate from all of those other things. And here now Jesus finishes off the the, the explanation by saying in verse 35, he says, but love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And, and, and here it is, you shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. So here's what Jesus does in defining for us what love really means is he says that the love that God has towards us is a love that's altogether separate from the kind of human love that we have towards one another on whatever depth or level or reason that we have for the love that we have for one another. It's a totally different kind of love. And it's a love that's not based upon anything in the natural, but rather it's a love that is absolutely supernatural. The word agape is exclusive and exclusively used to the kind of love that God has towards us. And it's altogether separate from every other kind of love because every other love hangs on something. There's a reason for it. But agape love hangs on absolutely nothing. It's a love, listen, that exists by choice and nothing but choice, and it remains without conditions. Therefore, it's a love that cannot grow out of something because it has no ground in anything physical or anything human. And therefore, it also cannot change and it cannot stop because it isn't definable in where it comes from. It just is. And it, it's a love that's defined by Jesus. And now here, it's defined by John in the text that we have before us. And he calls us to this command, and he tells us that we're to love one another. And the kind of love that we're to extend towards one another is not phileo, it's not storge, and it's not eros. We're called to agape one another. We are called to love one another without conditions and without choice, irrelevant of what's done to us or what we'll get from us, from it or what we won't get from it. It's a love that supersedes all natural reason. It's a supernatural reason. Why? Why are we to do that? John tells us in verses seven and eight, because love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And it says he that loves not knows not God because God is love. That one of the very defining characteristics of who God is, is this very thing, agape love. Now, the Christian or the church, if we want to do it in a broad brush and just kind of be inclusive for all of us, the church has two great commodities or resources to offer to the world that can come from nowhere else but from us. And those two things are truth and love. Now, truth is a very important thing because what truth does is that truth gives us answers, it gives us direction, it gives us discretion, it gives us wisdom, it teaches us the way of salvation. Without truth, it's impossible for us to come into a right relationship with God. 
And so truth is very important. Jesus would say in John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus would say that he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. Meaning that without truth, a human life is lost. And so truth is a very important thing. And the truth is something that's provided by the Christian. The church, according to Paul, is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so truth is a very important thing that we possess that gives answer to what the world needs. The world doesn't have truth. The world has ideals. The world has ideas. But the world does not have truth. They're constantly throwing darts in the dark, trying to hit something, hoping to grab a hold of some truth, but truth is elusive to the world and they cannot see it because the world is in darkness. The other thing, and probably by far the more important thing that the Christian has or the church has that were to supply to the world is this thing called love. And the reason why love is important is because love is the greatest human need that exists in all the world. It's what we were created for. You and I are separate from every other created being in that we have the capacity and the ability to both receive and be a channel of giving out love in a way that nothing else can. It's what we were made for. And so love is the greatest human need and we have a source. Now, why is love so important? Because what love does in the human life is that it unlocks the human spirit. It empowers and animates us and it brings out who we truly are and who we were made to be. Now, how many of us can relate to that when we think about our, our, our children that we're growing up and we're, you know, we're kind of watching them unfold and we're nurturing them and training them and they're being educated. And then a time comes in their life when they fall in love. And what happens to them? They begin to really blossom. Their personality comes to life. There's a light and a lamp that comes on in their eyes. There's something that, 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 that just animates that was never there before. And we say, what in the world has gotten into you? And the answer is, love has gotten into them. And they've become animated by it. Now, a person that is never loved and a person that never experiences love has an ungerminated heart. Their heart just kind of remains almost in a dormant space and what they were intended to be, what they were made to be, never really comes out and blossoms in the way that it could because love is the thing that brings that out and makes it happen. And so an unloved person very largely has a very barren soul. They're quenched in their expression and in their identity and who that they were made to be. Now, when a person has a betrayal and their love is betrayed, then that does immense damage in the heart and in the soul of a person. Because what happens when a person's love is violated is that their love, in a sense, you could say, it's spilled out, it's poured out on the ground, and their heart can grow hard because that person then begins to lock love out. Because love is so powerful and so vital and so necessary in the human being, in the human condition as God made it. And the pain that comes from having that love violated or used or abused causes a person to scar over their heart and, and they become afraid to ever let love in or ever, ever let love out again because that love has been betrayed. Now, because of that, because of the, the great vulnerability that love is in the human condition, there's only one safe love. 
There's only one kind of love that is safe for a human being to, to experience and to, uh, and to feel, and that's not going to damage that person, and that is the love that comes from God alone, agape love. A love that is absolute, a love that is selfless, a love that is absolutely, relentlessly, and fiercely faithful, a love that is unconditional, a love that is unfailing. And the only source of a love that can meet that criteria is the love that comes from God. And thus what we realize is that the very intention of what God created us for was to be in a relationship with himself and to be filled with and satisfied and then to become a channel of his love because his love is the only real love. Now, human love will never not fail. Human love at some point will break down. And the reason is because we're flawed, because we're sinful and sinners by nature. Human love cannot ultimately meet the criteria of the love that comes only from God. And that's why love, especially in young people, can be such a dangerous thing. I remember growing up, there was a young man who lived down the road uh, just from where we were, about a quarter of a mile down the road. And he was uh, my brother's age, so about three years older than I was. And he was very close friends with my brother. And this young man was just the, the, the picture of, uh, of human life. I mean, he was animated. He was alive. He was charged up. He was the life of the party. He had a sense of humor and a personality that was just electric. He was nice to everyone. He was friendly with everyone. He was involved with everything. He had an amazing capacity for intelligence and for activity and action and the things that he was a part of. He was just a remarkable human being. And he got involved with a young woman who was also uh, kind of in those same similar circles. And they dated throughout all of their high school years. And so uh, John and Becky were together for four years all throughout their high school. And they were uh, more or less inseparable. You know, they just became an item. And everybody had these two uh, pinned together that they would be together forever, that they would be married. They were voted the most likely uh, to, to be married in, 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 in all of those high school polls that are taken and all the rest. But then something happened about their senior year and there was a split up in the relationship and I watched what happened as an unsaved unregenerate totally blind and in the dark young man I watched what happened to this young man John and he went from being the life of the party and from being completely animate and being everything that he was that I described to being just a total shell of a human being the look in his eyes went dark and went hollow his personality completely dried up. It was like everything that he was that had been unlocked and that had become expressive had been poured out and spilled upon the ground and it could no longer be recovered. It was just gone. And it was like when you see one of those movies about almost someone who, who's like an Alzheimer's patient or something that just isn't what they once were. And it was just a picture in my mind. And ever since then... It's been a strong warning that I give to young people. In fact, it's a warning that Solomon gives in the Bible when he says, do not awaken nor arouse love before its time. Because it's a very vulnerable, it's a very risky thing to pour your love into an imperfect love that ultimately will fail and break down. There's only one safe love in all of the universe and it's the agape love that comes from God. Every other love will fail and will break down. And thus the only real expression of true love, agape love, on a human level, listen carefully, is a love 
wherein I am satisfied and filled completely with his love. And the love that I then give and receive is a channeled love that comes first from God and then is poured out upon others or expressed upon others or a love that is poured out from God on someone else and then received in the same way. It's the love that comes from God. And any other love than that is not love. It's something else. We might call it love, or the English language might call it love, or Hollywood might call it love, but it's not love. It's dangerous. It's something else. And it pulls the heartstrings and the soul strings of human emotions in a way that can be extremely dangerous. And if it ceases to come from God, if the love I have goes rogue, And no longer is love that I'm giving coming from God and flowing through me, but rather it's become a detached from God love where now this something or this person is a greater affection or love in my life than first of all the love that comes from God, then that love has broken down. It has become something other than agape love and it will ultimately break down. And so John describes for us, the Bible describes for us this love. Now, how does John define this love in the text that before, that's before us? He defines it in verses 9 and 10 by the expression of love that was shown to us by the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9 that in this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And, and here's the third thing, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God sent his son into the world. That's number one. That we might live through him. That's number two. And that he became the propitiation for our sins. And so what John says is that this is the love that God has given to us. That God gave us his best sacrificially to our greatest need at a time when we were at our worst and didn't deserve it. And that the reason or the motive behind God's expression of love was so that we could live. He wanted us to live. That was his intention and his supreme motive. So nothing in it for himself. And that the cost of that love, he tells us in verse 10, is that it drove him to become the propitiation for our sins. And what that literally means when it says that he's the propitiation for our sins, it means that he personally removed our sins from us. Line item by line item. Every sin, every sinful thought, every sinful action, every hint of darkness, everything that we were, he removed it from us and he placed it upon himself. That he took and bore the guilt, the shame, the punishment, and paid the price for our sin in his own body so that we could be reconciled to God and thus that we might live. And the reason why he did it was completely for our benefit all about for us and not at all for him. And so the love that God has towards us, the agape love demonstrated through God, is that it had someone else's best interest in mind, that it was willing to give all that it had sacrificially for nothing in return at all. 
completely to the benefit of those in whom the love would be given. And then John gives to us the call. So with that as the backdrop, the definition of what love is, the call is then given to us in verse 11, and he says very clearly, Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought also to love one another. Now, the most important and powerful and challenging word in that verse is that little word, so. Right there at the, in the middle of the verse when he says, Beloved, if God so loved us. Because what John is saying to us here is he's saying that if that is the way that God loved us, then that is the way that we are to love one another. That is the love that we're to have towards each other in the body of Christ is not a love that's based upon a common interest, that grows out of a common ground, that grows out of a common origin. Well, I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, so we can love each other. And it's not a love that's based on any feeling at all, a feeling that I have towards you or that you would have towards me. But it's a love that is completely based upon choice, choice that I'm making, a love that has no reason whatsoever for it and that hopes for nothing in return. That's the kind of love that you and I are called to have towards one another, the same love that God has towards us, a sacrificial giving of ourselves to those who don't deserve it so that they might live. The Apostle Paul defines it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's calling us to a common thinking pattern to that of Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, meaning that he was God and allowed himself to be called God, but rather he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, a slave. God became a slave and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even to the death of the cross. And so the call that we are being given by the Bible is that we're to have the same mind and the same love towards one another that Jesus Christ had towards us. And what that means is that we are to humble ourselves to a position of esteeming ourselves as lower than the person that's next to us, the lowest person in the room in our esteem, and then we are to elevate that person and express love to them in a very intentional, visible, and active way. And that's the call that John gives to us here, and he tells us that it's the love that God intends and desires and commands that we give. Now, then John goes on to do a very beautiful thing in the passage before us. Is what he does is he tells us what's going to happen if we obey. What will we expect to see or what will the results be if we do what John says and we love the way that God calls us to love? And if you're taking notes, you can write these things down. But John says this is going to be the result of this kind of love being expressed by you to others. First of all, and it's given to us here in verse 12, is that the invisible God is going to become visible in us. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, no man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, then God dwells in us. Now, we are visible. 
We are tangible. And we are an expression of something within the world. And though God is invisible, we are very visible. And God is intangible, but we are tangible. And if we love, then God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. So not only are we seen that God dwells in us, but God's love is seen. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And so the invisible God becomes visible in us when we love the way that Jesus loves. If love is the defining characteristic of God and he alone possesses it, which he does, then for us to give away that love and to be channels of that love means that we are giving God away to others. I think that one of the most grievous errors that the church and the Christian makes in the day in which we live is that we seek to be relatable with the world. We try to find common ground. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to find common ground and that it's a sin to be relatable. But I think that what the church has done is at the expense of love, we have sought to be relatable to the world and find common ground in the things that the world uh, seeks and what the world wants. And in doing that, what we've done is we've ignored the commodity that God has given us to give to the world. Now, we have the truth we have love. The world has none of those things. What the world has is the world has distractions and the world has diversions. So the world distracts you from seeking after truth and then it diverts you away from it and then it uses its amusements and entertainments to cover up the hole or the void that not having God's love creates in a human life. So the error of the church is that we've sought to try to compete with the world and to entertain people and to use the world's means of diverting and distracting and entertaining, and we've neglected to give away the two things that we have, the truth and love. Now, the church, the Christian, can never compete with the world when it comes to entertainment. It's a lost cause, and it's a lost battle every time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the money. We don't have the effects. We don't have the talent, although we have some very talented people in the church of Jesus Christ. But we cannot compete with the world when it comes to entertainment and distractions and diversions and amusements. But the world can't touch the church when it comes to the things that we have, which is the truth and love. And if we would stop trying to compete with the world and entertain people and relate to them and get them to come in because, hey, we can do what the world does. And if we would be what we're called to be and allow God to be through us what he says that he'll be through us, then we can give to the world what the greatest need is that the world has. And that's what we're called to do. And he says that the invisible God becomes visible in us when we love one another. Church entertainment is like a bad Chinese knockoff. It breaks down, it doesn't satisfy, and it ultimately will fail completely and be exposed for what it is, a sham. That's all it is. But what we have is the greatest treasure that exists in all the universe. And he's given us the power and the call to give it away. The second thing that happens if we do what we're called to do and if we love like Jesus loves is that the more we give, the more we get. 
Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13 at the end. He says that if we love that God dwells in us, secondly, his love is perfected in us, and thirdly, he gives us of his spirit. What that means is this, is that as we obey the command to love as he loves, as we give away the love that God supplies for us, we get to be partakers of that love as it flows through us. There are two seas, lakes, in the country or the nation of Israel. There is the Sea of Galilee in the north, and there's the Dead Sea in the south. And there's a parable that those two bodies of water speak to the people of the land and really to the whole world. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. It's one of the most prolific lakes in the world in terms of its fishing and the life that it, that it has and the, 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 the things that it's able to produce and the water that's irrigated out of that to water the, the, the orchards and the crops and the trees that are all in that surrounding area. It's a beautiful, lush land all because of the Sea of Galilee. But what the Sea of Galilee has is that it has inflow and outflow. The other sea is the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is the lowest spot on the planet. I think the salt content of the water is somewhere around like 20 or 30%. And it's so saline and so toxic that absolutely nothing can live in the Dead Sea. Yet what gives the Dead Sea its water and its nutrients is the same water that flows from the north of Dan and supplies the Sea of Galilee. It's all linked together. But the difference between the Sea of Galilee, which is teeming with life, and the Dead Sea, which possesses no life at all, is that Galilee has inflow and outflow, wherein the Dead Sea only has inflow, but there's no outlet at all. It completely takes in, but it doesn't give away. And the same thing is true for the Christian. As we receive God's love and then channel it out and give it out, more is given to us and we become teeming with life. Everything in us comes to life and grows. Everything around us that we touch, we become like the man in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of God. He's like a tree that brings forth fruit in his season. His leaf doesn't wither and he, he prospers in whatever he does. But the ungodly, not so. If we take in, but we don't give out, then we become dead inside. And so if we obey John's command, not only is God seen in us, but we also receive of God what he has to give to us. If you want more of God in your life, then the answer is to give away what you've got. The third thing that our love does when we give it away or the love of God does when we give it away is that it makes our testimony effective. Notice what John says in verse 14. He says, We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. That's our message, isn't it? Isn't that the testimony that we bring to the world? That if you put your faith in Jesus the Son and confess that he is Lord and make him the Lord of your life, that God will come into your life and dwell in your life? But that's not enough. Notice in verse 16 what he says. He says that we have known and believed... The love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. How many of us have ever wondered in this room why it is that when we testify truth to people that they don't hear it or receive it? 
We explain the gospel. We give the testimony of the scriptures. We pray Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We explain eternal damnation versus eternal salvation. We explain the gift of God that's in Christ and the freedom that he gives. We, we give away. We seek to do it. But yet for some reason, there's a disconnect. And the person just says, I could care less. I don't need that in my life. I don't want that in my life. And we wonder why. Do you know why? So often it's because our testimony lacks love. Love is the key that gets inside the heart that opens a person up to receive the truth so that they might be saved. And if all they're given is the information that this is the gospel and this is how you get saved, but there's no taste of the love of God, the thing that's satisfied, then the person could care less. When Jesus, the Son of God, stood before Pilate, And he testified concerning the truth. Pilate could care less about truth. He looked at Jesus and he said, what is truth? Here's a man that spent the night being tormented in a dream because of his rejection of the son of God. He was unaffected by the love of God and therefore he cared less about the truth. Jesus met a woman at the well in John chapter four. And when Jesus came to the woman at the well, she knew a lot of truth. She said, well, our fathers say that this is the proper place to worship, and you guys believe that it's in Jerusalem. Well, Jacob gave us this well. She was well-versed in theology. She knew all kinds of things, but she could care less about truth. She was living a life that was completely contrary to the truth. But when she came face to face with the Son of God, and she heard the tone of his voice, and she saw the look in his eye, And she was in the presence of a man who was genuinely interested in her, not for what she looked like or what she could give to him, but there was something that was deeper, that was unconditional, that would remain, and she could sense it in her spirit that it was coming from him. She dropped her bucket at the well, ran back to the village, saved and converted a whole village. She was changed. Why? Not because there was a different truth given to her, but because love was manifested and love unlocked her heart in such a way that truth could get inside. And what God calls us to is not to be truth tellers only, but to be those that carry the love of God with us in such a way as that when we love on people, they look at us and they can't wait to hear what we have to say because they know that we care about them. And that matters infinitely more. Love makes our testimony effective. Love also, according to verse 17, prepares us to stand before him with confidence. He says to us in verse 17, he says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. Now, how many of us are apprehensive about standing before Jesus Christ one day and giving account for the life that we lived on earth? I know that from time to time, that thought comes into my mind. How am I going to answer for this? How am I going to answer for that? I know this is going to come up. Maybe that part will be blanked out in red. I hope that it is, you know. And we have those thoughts. But what John is saying here is that as the love of God takes hold in our life and is perfected in us in greater and greater measure, then the day of judgment becomes less and less of a concern to us. We're ready and bold to stand before him. Now, why? How does the love of God make us stand complete in judgment? Number one is because, very simply, it's very difficult to sin against love, isn't it? It's easy to sin against law. When we lay the law on someone, it's almost a guarantee that they're going to sin against that, right? But when we genuinely love someone, when my kids know that I genuinely love them, 
then they have a desire to please me, not because I'm laying the law on them, but because they don't want to disappoint or violate or sin against that love. And when we recognize the love that God has towards us, that's the greatest tool of reformation and transformation that exists in all the world. The law makes nothing perfect, but love does in the bringing in of a better covenant. So it's hard to sin against love. Also, the more I understand his love, the more I understand the cross. And what the cross does is the cross puts away my sin. And the more I understand that my sin has been put away, it makes me understand that when I stand before him, he's not going to hold me accountable for those things that I've done in violation to him. They've been purchased and paid for by the blood. The cross has covered away my sin. Oh, blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the son of God who died for me. The cross of Christ. He really did bear my sin. And thirdly, because the more the love of God affects me, the more Christ-like I become. And so I'm conformed into his image. And thus, as I'm conformed into his image, I don't fear judgment because I'm living and walking like Jesus did. And so the love of God prepares me to stand before him with confidence. And then finally, number five, his love makes me entirely secure. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says in verse 18 that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Now, the fear that he's talking about here is not necessarily the fear of tragedy. You know, I'm afraid that something is going to happen that's bad, the whole thing. The fear that he's speaking of in this context is the fear of the love failing. The fear of God's love abandoning me in some way. The fear that God is going to abuse the love that I've entrusted to him or that I've received from him. That God is going to betray that love or withdraw it in some way. Or that that love is going to fail. Or that at some point something's going to happen and God's no longer going to love me. That he's going to remove that love from me and I'm going to be labeled as unacceptable or rejected. And that's a real fear that many of us can have from time to time is to think, well, if I allow God to love me and I let him in, what if that love fails? And what John is telling us here is that the more that we experience and allow that love in and then out of our lives, the more secure we become in it, recognizing that it really is a love that is unconditional and a love that's not going to fail. It's love that casts out fear. I love the example of Abraham in this. When you look at the life of Abraham, Abraham was a very fearful man for much of his life. When he was first called of God, he knew God, but he was afraid of the famine in Egypt. There was fear. And so he left Egypt thinking that God's love wouldn't be able to supply and take care of him in in the land. So he left Israel and he went down to Egypt. A little bit later on, he came back and he was afraid then of death. Or Actually, down in Egypt, he was afraid of death. And so he told his wife to lie. He said, if they find out you're my wife, they'll kill me and take you. And I'm afraid. So so tell them you're my sister so that they spare my life. And he let Sarah get taken into the harem so that he could survive. He was afraid of death. A little bit later when he came back, he was afraid that God's promise to him would fail. He said, God came to him, Genesis 15, and he said, Abraham, fear not, for I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham was afraid. And Abraham confessed it. He said, yeah, but God, I'm, I'm childless. Your promise isn't coming to pass. I'm an old man now. God said, all right, let me show you. God took him through and cut covenant with him and assured him of the promise. He was afraid. 
And Abraham constantly, he was afraid of the king of Sodom. There was fear. But as Abraham continued to walk with God, and he continued to experience God, the faith grew, the love grew, to the point where eventually Abraham came to the point where he said, you are almighty God. You can do everything. Nothing's too hard for you. A little bit later on, he called him the everlasting God. It's not going to fail. It's not going to stop. It's not going to fall short. It's not going to quit. It's not going to reject me suddenly. And then ultimately, he called him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. Not in the cheap sense. God, you provide all my needs. Thank you for all that you... No, 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 no. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. A ram with his horns caught in the thicket. God himself shall provide a lamb. He was shown Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of his own sins. And in that context, he said, God will provide it. And love cast out fear as Abraham was perfected in the love of God. And so love casts out fear. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Verses 19 through 21, John sums up the passage by telling us of love's origin. He says that it's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He's the originator of it. We respond. He says in verse 20, love's test is that if we love one another, that's the proof that the love of God is real in us. And then he closes the passage in verse 21 with the command again that he began with. And that is that we are to love one another with the same type of love that God has given to us. So as we close and the musicians can come, the great question that looms before us in all of this is how? Because I know how to storge. I can find common ground with just about anyone. I know how to phileo. I can, I can forge that if I have to and find a blood bond with someone, even if it's the blood of Christ. I can phileo you in, in the Lord. Eros, that comes easy. That's human. That's desire and passion. That's built right into my very flesh. You know, I, I know how to do all of those things. But God, if you're asking me to love someone unconditionally, if you're asking me to love my enemy and the person that grates on me the most, if you're asking me, God, to love someone that violates that love over and over again and to continually extend myself even to the point of death and to let the mind, then I don't know how to do that. That becomes an impossibility for me. And Lord, I need a little bit more instruction on this command than simply just giving me the command to do it. How do I do it? Number one, you must be born again. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, it is an impossibility. It cannot happen. Because love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God, and he that loves not knoweth not God, because God is love. This kind of love can only come from God. And if you don't know God, and you're not in a relationship with God, then it's impossible for you to have this love even touch your life. And if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, then you don't know what this love is. You've had everything else that you've called love, but you have never had real love. And so step one in comprehending and giving this love away is that you must be born again, that you must come to him and say, I am a sinner in need of a savior. And if you'll receive me as your son or your daughter, then I am willing to lay my sins down at the foot of your cross and to be yours completely. And I need to be filled with this love. 
And God will meet any person that comes to him on those terms and says, God, please save me. And that is step one. And he will fill that heart with the love that we've been talking about. Romans 5, 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. We declare and do testify that if anyone believes in the Son of God, that he is born of God and God dwells in him or her. So if you're not saved, forget it. You can't have this kind of love. It won't happen. It won't work. So step one is be born again. If that's been the case, then number two, and thank God there's not more than two, not because of the length of the Bible study, but because I can't remember more than that. (laughs) Number two is obey the command. The Bible is filled with God giving impossible commands to his people. Stretch out your hand. It's withered. It doesn't work. I've never been able to stretch out my hand. But when Jesus says, stretch out your hand, you can stretch out your hand. Give ye them to eat, Jesus said to the twelve. Lord, we only have a few loaves and fish. That's a, it's an impossibility. We can't do that. Those terms are too, it doesn't work. Do the, science, do the math. Check the science. But his commandment became his enablement. And once they obeyed, they were able to do the impossible. Lord, if that's you, then bid me to come out on the water with you. Come out on the water. Man can't walk on water. Ever tried it? Summertime, go for it. (laughs) But Jesus said it. Peter came out of the boat and Peter walked on water. Why? Because Jesus called him to do it. And when God gives us a command that goes beyond and supersedes the ability of human resource, then he is obligated at his very word to supply what we need in order to see that happen in our lives. And so if you're born again, the command of God to you tonight and to me is that we are to intentionally, actively, and fiercely, unconditionally love people. That's what we're called to do. The most unlovely, the most unthankful, the most undesirable, the people that have nothing to give to us in return. That's who we're called to love. And he will empower us to do it. And the result will be that the invisible God will be seen. We will receive more of him that we desire to have for ourselves. Our testimony will bear fruit because there's love flowing out of our lives. We will be prepared for judgment and perfect love casts out all fear. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask you, God, that you would empower this command within our hearts and our lives. That we might be not hearers only of the word, but doers of it. And I know tonight for many of us, the stumbling block is that we feel like we're not receiving of your love enough to be able to give it away to anyone else. For some, perhaps we felt like we've never received it at all. And so my prayer tonight, Lord, for each of us here, myself included, every member of this congregation, those sitting here listening, is that, God, you would fill us afresh with the love of God. That you would show us what it means that God gave his son that we might live to be a propitiation for our sins, the just for the unjust, the savior of the world, the lover of our soul. Shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. And, Lord, would you empower us to leave here different than the way that we came in, that the way that we look at one another, the way we look at people, God, that we would be changed forever. That you would empower 
our desire and your command and that we would be lovers according to your word. We thank you for the power in it and we ask you, Lord, that you would do it. In Jesus' name. Tonight the altar is open. If, as we sing this last song, you just feel like you need to be filled up with the love of God and you feel like you don't want to just leave here and let the message just kind of spill out in the car and the conversation on the way home or whatever's after this. And You, know, you just want to spend a moment sitting before the God, being, being refilled. Or perhaps you want to say, God, here's my life. I've never given it to you, but here it is. I, I, want, I want to be yours. I need to be yours. And come, come to the altar. Spend a moment. And then go back to your seat. Just say, say, God, I need a touch. I need a touch from you tonight. And he'll meet you here. Nothing magic about this place but our step of faith. Let's stand together as we close out the service tonight, shall we?